Well, there's an old adage that says you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Why anyone would want to make fashion accessories out of the body parts of a pig, I'm not exactly sure. And its meaning may not be entirely obvious to us because we don't do all that much with sow's ears these days, but it means that you can't make something of high quality out of inferior materials. You can't start with a discarded piece of pig and make it into a quality clutch. Trouble is, I think that the Bible broadly disagrees with this concept. Time after time, God turned the refuse of humanity into the giants of history. He turned a gangly shepherd boy named David into the greatest king Israel ever had. He turned an impetuous and unschooled fisherman named Peter into the rock of the church. He turned a despised tax collector named Matthew into the gospel writer that bears his name. He turned a murderous terrorist named Saul into the greatest apostle the world has ever seen. And it seems like from the Bible's point of view, God can, in fact, make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Never has this been more clear to me in my Bible study than in the book of Amos, which is where we are in our Through the Bible series, stop number 27. We've made it all the way to the book of Amos. For those of you who are new today, we've been off and on working our way through the Bible, interrupted by, uh, by some other things that the Lord may have to say to us from his word, but uh, I think I started this in February of last year, making it the longest running series of my life, and uh, we're about halfway, so this should be great. Uh, The book of Amos, stop number 27. Uh, Amos is the third of 12 books called the Minor Prophets, although he was the earliest one to write, so if things went in chronological order, he would have been the first in the order. The context for the book of Amos is pretty straightforward. Amos did his prophecy and wrote, uh, we can pinpoint it to 765 B.C. How can you pinpoint it so closely, you ask? I dare you. Nicely done. Amos chapter 1, verse 1 will answer that question for us. The word of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake Quake when King Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. This is a pretty, pretty specific reference. And we can use external, extra-biblical sources, things that were happening in history around, outside, and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and such, to be able to actually pinpoint this date at 765 B.C., which would make Amos the earliest of all the prophets. And uh, he would have been a contemporary with Isaiah and Hosea, who also did their thing while Uzziah was king. But uh, Amos would have been uh, earlier even than them. This would have been prior to the fall of Israel, the kingdom of Israel to the north, uh, in, which happened in 722 B.C. So nothing had fallen yet. Nothing had fallen. And so here you have this early prophet coming, and he's declaring these truths to repent and return to God, though nothing had fallen yet. So he was kind of like Noah, warning the world that there was a big flood coming, and people are saying, yeah, okay, whatever. And so this is where he was. He was from one of the fortified cities. There were a number of cities throughout Palestine called fortified cities, 
And what they were, were they were a place to run when war broke out. Things were pretty unstable at the time, and uh, technology was pretty stagnant. And so you couldn't fortify every city. You couldn't use all of your resources. You didn't have enough resources to go around. So there were certain cities that were called fortified cities. Tekoa was one of those cities. And uh, the kings had actually fortified the walls, had actually uh, stationed military there, if you will, their equivalent of military. And so with the shifting world powers, especially with the stuff going on in Assyria and Egypt and Babylon and this stuff, and, and poor Israel's kind of caught right in the middle of the whole thing, then they, they never knew when war was going to come. You know, they, they didn't get like an Instagram that something was happening. They knew war was going to come when either somebody came running, riding in fast, or they saw the troops approaching. And so they had to have these fortified cities, these places, these places to run. Um, the downside of that was because Israel and Judah had established these fortified cities, they were, they were shifting in their dependence. See if this sounds familiar at all. They were shifting in their dependence toward their organization, toward their fortified cities, toward their military, and they were, they were shifting away from their dependence on, on the God who had gained them the victory for even overtaking Palestine. That doesn't sound familiar at all, does it? A nation that would shift its dependence away from God and onto its military, that doesn't sound the least bit familiar. But it's what was happening in, uh, in this time in, in Amos 5.9, if you'd like a reference as part of, part of uh, Amos's prophecy, as he was talking about the danger of this, he was talking about the danger of not depending on God and how they must return to God. And speaking of God in Amos 5.9, it says, He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. So that, you know, they can fortify their cities all they want, but they can't overpower God. They cannot protect themselves from the judgment of God, which was impending as these prophets were, were rolling into play. Um, also, by way of context, um, Amos actually lived in Judah, but he prophesied in Israel. So many of you uh, have been reading your Bible enough to know that after King Solomon was the king, that like this civil war broke out, and so the kings that, that succeeded Solomon were not respected by everybody, and there was a division between the north and the south, and to the north was Israel, and they had as their capital city Samaria. To the south was Judah, and they had as their capital city Jerusalem. And so these became two very separate uh, kingdoms, although they were still presumably calling on Yahweh, the same God, the same God of the first covenant. And so there was this, um, there was this division, and Tekoa was actually in Judah, but, he was, but, but Amos was called to prophesy in Israel. So he had to cross the state line. I think to put this in perspective, it would be like, you're ahead of me, aren't you? It would be like a Buckeye going to Ann Arbor to bring the word of the Lord, to cause them to turn and repent. I'm so happy to see that three of my favorite teams won yesterday. So happy to see that your team won, because you're so much happier when they do, that my team won, and I'm also happy to say that Ohio's in the World Series big time, aren't they? That's, that's pretty crazy. 
Is anybody secretly hoping that they lose tonight so that they can win in Cleveland? Is that just me? I, I didn't say that out loud, and when Don Ivers comes to the next service, don't tell him I said that, please, okay? But that's what was happening, and so Amos was from the southern kingdom, and he was called to prophesy to the northern kingdom. Now, in history, the northern kingdom fell first. It fell in 722 B.C., and it wasn't until 587 B.C. that the southern kingdom fell. So this is a very early set of prophecies going out before anyone had fallen. Now, one of the cool things in context about Amos is that if you read it, although the, the prophecies are pretty stark, that he seems to speak with an element of hope that Israel might actually repent, that they might actually repent and, and return. Now, it's important to realize that these are very early prophecies, and how many of you like me know that it's easier to be idealistic in the beginning of something? It's, easier, it's a lot easier to be positive and hopeful and idealistic in the beginning of something than in, in, instead of when reality comes rushing in, right? And so that's what, kind of what we have going on. Here he is, the first of all these prophets, and so... If you pick up an element of hope, remember it's, oh, I'm going to go tell them and they're going to repent, right? I know it's a hard word, but I'm going to say it and they're going to go, oh, woe is us. Woe are us, sorry. Woe is, woe are, woe are we. Woe are, (laughs) you know, that woe, we need to change. And that was his hope. That was his hope. And then as you read these other prophets who have some of the same material, much of the same message, then their, their, their hope begins to, you guys are not going to get this, are you? You are not going to return to God, are you? So that's the context that's being set up here. The main points in the book of, of Amos are, are pretty clear. Much of, much of Amos sounds similar to the other prophets. Why? Because there's, the, the message is one thing. It's like turn. And, and much of Amos is stark. They talk about locusts and uh, fires and earthquakes and much of Amos is kind of a buzzkill as you're you know walking with Jesus and you're going yeah this stuff is really heavy duty but I think among the things that are somewhat unique to Amos is his call to social justice for one thing is one of the main points in uh, throughout the book of Amos it was like the poor are being exploited and uh, it was a real call to social justice. If you to look at Amos chapter 5 and start in verse uh, 10, or just, just do 10 for now. Uh, you hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. And so it was a corrupt day. It was a very prosperous day. But the separation between the rich and the wealthy was getting bigger and bigger, which is the next main point uh, in the book of Amos. And he talks about the complacency of the wealthy. And in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. Now remember, Samaria was their capital city. You notable men of the foremost nation. A little sarcasm there. He's from Judah. You notable men of the foremost nation. Uh, to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Calna and look at it. Go from, go from there to Great Hamath, and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? And then he says to the wealthy, You put off the day of evil 
and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and your lounging will end. That's a tough day. That's a lot to hear. But it was his message. It was his message. And uh, it was a big part of his message. Another main point in the book of Amos is that Israel has fallen into, they've jeopardized, if you will, their preferred status with God. You know, throughout the Old Testament, they're the chosen people of God. And as they're attending to the things of the covenant, as they're having relationship with God through the covenant, then they are the, the cherished ones. They are the favored ones of God, the preferred ones of God. And they're in jeopardy, Amos. So you're, you're going to lose that. You're going to be just like all the rest because the thing that distinguished them was God's grace toward them in the covenant, in the old covenant. And as they were abandoning the covenant, as they were abandoning the temple worship, as they were abandoning the things of God, then they, Amos is saying, you guys are going to, you're, you're ultimately going to divorce him. You're ultimately going to divorce God, and then you're going to be on your own. You're going to be just like the rest. Um, one of the interesting introductions in the book of Amos is uh, the concept of the day of the Lord. Amos, this is original with Amos. We see this in other, other passages, but the day of the Lord was something, or other prophets, uh, the day of the Lord was something that was seen by the people of God as a day when God would come back and he would avenge all the in- enemies of Israel, all the enemies of Judah, all the enemies of the people of God. Because ultimately they said that those who are enemies of us are enemies of God. And so that he is going to come back and avenge his enemies on the earth. Because, you know, Israel had been oppressed by all these people, the Egyptians, they had been oppressed. They were going to be oppressed by the Babylonians. They were going to be oppressed by the Assyrians. All this was happening, and so this day of the Lord was thought of as the day when God would come and make everything right. And Amos says, well, there's a problem with that. The day of the Lord is a real thing, but Israel, you have abandoned God, and so you, in effect, have made yourself an enemy of God, and you shouldn't hope for the day of the Lord, because when it comes, you yourselves are going to be consumed. If you look at um, uh, Amos Chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That, will be, that day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he, I know, I love this guy. As he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. He says, you guys long for this. I remember my first trip to India. This has nothing to do with anything, and I didn't plan to tell you, but I love this little story. You'll find it amusing with the put your hand on a wall for a snake to bite you. And it was my first trip to India. I was half terrified, and we were out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Tarzan wasn't even there. I mean, we were so far out there. 
and uh, we were staying at this place where Pastor Stephen had built this little medical outlet hospital type thing, and I was being shown around by Jay Rajan, the leader of it, and he was the, Dr. Jay Rajan was the guy over the hospital, and he was showing me around the grounds. They had like five acres, and he had planted some trees and stuff like that, and it's like getting, starting to just get a little bit dark, and because we got to the late, and we're just showing me around, and and uh, I, I, I don't know, it just occurred to me to ask. I said, there aren't any snakes on this property, are there? And he looked at me kind of like, oh, pastor, there are many snakes on this property. <laughs> In fact, we had just run a cobra off. <laughs> and it was like, all right, I'm not liking this a whole lot. And then I got shown to my room, my room, which was uh, pretty basic. And uh, the windows, they were windows, and they were blocked with, like, um, iron grates that had spaces in them about this wide. And I had been laying there on the bed once, and this lizard about this long came in. I saw him. He stepped up there, looked in. He came in, went behind the dresser, never saw him again. I don't... <laughs> so all this is rolling around in my mind, right? Now, I'm just a boy from Ohio here. And uh, are there snakes on the property? Yes, there are snakes on the property. So I'm in this little bathroom thing. There's a sink, and I'm washing my face, and my glasses are off. I know. And I'm washing my face. Ah, snakes. Ah, Jesus. Why have you brought me here, Lord? I'm of no use to anyone. Send me home. And and I, I look up, and there's a shelf right here that has, like, soap on it. And I look over at it. And there was a frog, just a frog on the shelf. But I didn't have my glasses on, and I thought it was a snake. Because the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, right? I'm thinking snakes. I see a fuzzy vision of eyes and a nose looking at me. And I jumped out of my flipping skin. But lived to tell about it. You should go on a mission trip with us. It's, it's a blast. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, the day of the Lord, Amos is saying, you guys call out for the day of the Lord like it's going to be good for you. And he said, it's not. Because you've abandoned the, the love relationship that God wants to have with you. So these are the main points. And uh, I think we're going to take a break from these minor prophets pretty soon because they really are hard to work through. The material starts to get a little heavy after a while. I think we're going to take a shot or two at it and then take a little break from them for a while. See if I can pump your tires back up, okay? But the hot spot, and again, for those of you who are new, this is kind of the pattern we follow in this through the Bible. We look at the context. We look at the main points. And then each week I just pray for a hot spot. Like, God, what do you want to say to us here in Grove City, Ohio? What do you want to say to us what, what message do you want to put on our hearts? And the hot spot, I only had to go to the first verse. And it says, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. And the hot spot for me as I was praying through this was this word that he's a shepherd. This Amos is a shepherd. He's a, and you can picture that, right? Sheep were an important part of the economy for their food, for their wool, for the thousands that were sacrificed in the temple. And so you can picture 
that Amos is a shepherd. This is his job. This is his life calling. Well, what did that mean? Well, to be a shepherd in those days meant that you pretty much couldn't do anything else. Because you were passed over by all the rabbis because you weren't bright enough to like learn the scriptures and serve in the in the function of the 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 um, what am I thinking? The synagogues that were scattered throughout. You could, you weren't bright enough for that. You had uh, not come from a family where you could have been a smith of some kind and made stuff, an artisan. You perhaps couldn't even have been a fisherman, and so. Anybody can be a shepherd. Anybody can really be a shepherd. And these shepherds, they were the worst. They, uh, there's no need for formal training, so their station in society was super low. I mean, if you think about these guys out taking care of these sheep, there's no need to shave, there's no need to bathe, there's, there's no need for manners. I mean... <laughs> I've been on enough men's events that it's like, holy mackerel, you guys. It's like once the girls aren't around, the gloves are off, aren't they? And it's like, um, I think that's the kind of thing we normally say excuse me afterwards, but apparently not here. These guys, these guys had a lifestyle of this. So this is who they were. The shepherds. The shepherds were the human equivalent of a sow's ear. They were discards. They, they were an unfortunate necessity in the economy because they needed shepherds, but nobody liked them. Like Ticketmaster. You know what I mean? You want to go see the comedian or the concert, and the ticket's like 86 bucks, and then there's a $30 Ticketmaster charge, and you just want to choke somebody? Who knows what I'm talking about? Can I get a witness? But somehow that's the only way you're going to get this ticket, right? So they were, these shepherds were kind of an unfortunate necessity in the economy. And uh, that's what Amos was. He was the low of lows. He was a shepherd. I pondered something new this week. Want to hear it? I know, after 40 years of walking with Jesus, I pondered out something new this week. So, I was wondering, is there a song playing in the, I don't, oh, is it okay? Oh, there we go, okay, thanks, sorry. I have ADD, I don't ever mean to embarrass anybody, I just get so easily distracted. Um, what was I talking about? <laughs> oh, I, I pondered something new this week. <laughs> Thanks. I pondered something new this week, and uh, what it was was, you know, of all the riffraff that Jesus called to be his disciples, he didn't call a shepherd. I mean, there were fishermen. There were tax collectors. There were these rabble-rousing zealots. These people were really low in society, and we've celebrated that before, haven't we? Why didn't he, ever, why didn't he call a shepherd as one of the twelve? It would have so made the point, wouldn't it, that I'm, I'm open to everybody. But he didn't do that. He left that spot open. And I was like, Lord, why did you, why did you leave that spot open? Why didn't, why didn't you have a shepherd? And then I went to John 10. 
And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Jesus said, I reserve the lowest spot for myself. The king of kings, the Lord of the universe, said, I reserve that spot for me. That was mind-blowing this week. Amos was a shepherd. He was a shepherd, it says, of Tekoa. What's Tekoa? Well, Tekoa is a city that's about five miles south of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the city of David. Second Samuel said that that's where David grew up. What was David before he was a king? He was a shepherd. He wasn't even welcome in the house when Samuel the prophet came along. They had to go get him because he was out with the stinking sheep. It's from those very same hills. It was from those same hills just south of Bethlehem that the Gospel of Luke tells us there were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And it was from that same spot. It was from exactly that same spot. that Amos was raised up. And not only was he a shepherd, but if you look more, a little more carefully at Amos 1.1, it says, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. He wasn't even like the head shepherd. <laughs> he was just rank and file shepherd. And God raised him up and caused him to be the first of these prophets. Look what God did with such an otherwise underwhelming life. It's pretty amazing. And I just want you to think about that in your life and what could possibly be in store for you no matter where you are or what you've done or how low you feel you are on the social station. God seems to delight in making silk purses out of sow's ear, and it turns out, actually, that you actually can make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. So in 1921, an MIT chemist named Andrew Little decided that he would test that adage. He said that that whole philosophy was just invading too much of science, that, no, that can't be done, that can't be done, that can't be done. And so he thought he'd take on that adage. And so the first thing he did was he studied silkworms. He watched them, and he noticed how these strands came out of their heads and that they were somehow wound together. And then he analyzed these strands. Chemically, he was a chemist, and so he chemically analyzed these strands. And then he took it to the next step where he took 100 pounds of sow's ears. Not exactly sure where you'd go for that. Amazon, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> eBay. 
but he got a hundred pounds of sow's ears and he separated the cartilage out of the sow's ears and he reduced this into a glue. You know, they make glue out of horse hoofs, right? Poor horses walking around with no hoofs. Well, they made a glue out of this cartilage. And then under extreme pressure, he pushed it through a strainer, and these very fine strands came out, and he would wind 16 of them together to make a strand similar to a strand of silk, only they were brittle, and they wouldn't wind. So what did he do? He soaked them in glycerin. What would you do, right? I know, it was your first thought. Why didn't he soak them in glycerin? And so he soaked these strands in glycerin, and then he dyed them, and he dried them, and then he put them on a common hand loom weaving device. (laughs) And he made that purse. He actually made two of them. One is in the Smithsonian. He said it was a very expensive purse. (laughs) And that his process had no practical value whatsoever but that he, he, had conquered, he had conquered this opposition that you cannot make a silk purse out of a sow's ear when in fact you can. There are so many great examples in this fellowship. I just look around this room and I see so many silk purses made out of some pretty stinky ears when you got here. I see some of you are half woven. That's good. It's a process, but I just see that God has done remarkable work in so many, many, many of you. Joseph was wasting away in a prison for a crime he didn't commit with no help, hope of getting out, and God came along and made him the ruler of all the food supplies in Egypt. King David was not even thought, thought of to be in the house when the prophet Samuel came along. And then God came along and caused Samuel to say, Do you have any other sons? James and John were not even picked by the rabbis, the sons of thunder, learning to fish with their father Zebedee, and Jesus came along. There was an Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot, hungry for God, and he was just trying to understand anything from the scriptures. And God sent Philip along, and he was saved, and his life was turned around. This is the plan of God. This is the message of God. And so you're wondering, what do I do? How do I I get onto this? How do I become a part of this transformative process? First of all, you've got to believe. You've got to believe that it's true. That's your decision. The witness of the Bible is consistent that God takes the refuse of humanity and makes heroes out of them. you got to choose to believe that. You're probably not going to get to write another book of the Bible because that's a done deal. But God has plans for you, and you got to believe that. Second, you got to draw near to God. Believing isn't enough. Nothing happens by just believing. Make the effort to draw near to God in prayer and in worship, in company with other believers. Draw near to God. And as you draw near to God, the third thing you've got to do is invite God to create personal vision in your life. As you're with God, just say, God, what do you see that I can't see? Who do you see that I can't see? Who's in there? 
And then the fourth thing you need to do is you need to push forward. You need to take the steps. God just opens a little. You don't need to know the whole thing. You just got to take the steps that are right in front of you to take. But you won't move into the vision by standing. You got to take the steps that God's calling you to take. If you've been here any length of time, you know that Ephesians 2.10 is one of my favorite verses. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. There is a theme throughout the Bible. There's a theme throughout the Bible where God is the potter and we're the clay. That appears several times in the scriptures where God is making something out of us as we surrender ourselves to him. God is making something out of us as we surrender ourselves to him, as we cooperate with his plans. One of the things that really struck me by this picture that's up behind me now, so I was just struck by it almost immediately, was that, you, you know, a, a potter cannot make a pot without getting his own hands dirty. A potter cannot make a pot without being willing to get his own hands dirty. And this is the message of the gospel that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He got his hands dirty. So don't disqualify yourself with the argument of, I just have too much garbage in my life. I think the Bible argues vehemently with you against that. That's a lie of the enemy. That's why you need him. That's why we need him. That's why I need him. Let's pray. Father, we invite your presence, your power to come and to make us into the vessels that only you could make. Lead us in our few minutes together here that we have left uh, just in a time of encountering you by that voice of your Holy Spirit inside of us encountering you by overcoming our own objections and moving us into places where you really could make something remarkable out of our lives because it would bring you glory. That people would look to the potter and would be amazed at what you can do with a surrendered life. So Father, I pray for every person here this morning. I pray that somehow this message has uh, gone into a place that would strengthen and encourage them, that would call them out of darkness into your light, that would create um, a dynamic of the Holy Spirit in every life, every one of our lives, that would cause us to hear the Lord say, I am not done with you yet. You're not finished. Lord, we repent of our resistance to you our arguing back with you about why we're not qualified or why we missed our chance or whatever, Lord. We just repent of that and want to turn to you in this moment and embrace the reality of your presence here. Move into that place where you can touch our hearts in that deep, deep place and we can respond by surrendering as clay in your hands thank you for not being done with us thank you for for not giving up on us 
Holy Spirit will come and move in power.